All right, open up your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We are making our way through this uh, incredible book. I hope, hopefully, you guys have enjoyed it. Uh, so far, I'm enjoying it. Uh, we took off a big chunk, a big bite uh, last week in uh, Peter's sermon. I felt like there's so much meat left on the bone uh, there last week. And uh, I'm going to say we're going to start to slow down a little bit because this section here in Acts 2, chapter, or chapter 2 and verses 42 down to 47, is a crucial part in understanding uh, the role and the priority of the local church. And so we need to make sure that we're getting it right as a church and that we understand what the church is for. And this is the birth of the church that we're going to study uh, right here, the first Christian fellowship that you could say. And it serves as a great model and a great description uh, for us to follow. It is, you could say, the blueprint of the local church. And uh, so we're going to study it in great detail um, and we're going we're gonna to start by doing that, uh, reading verses 42 down to verse 47. And, and I'm going to pray and ask of the Holy Spirit's help in gaining understanding. And then uh, we will dive into what it has to say. And then we get to take communion together. And uh, it's just going to be a great, great morning. So uh, let's read Acts 2, 42 down to verse 47. It says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and were selling their possessions and belonging and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Our Heavenly Father, once again, we get the privilege to open up the Word of God. May we never take it lightly that we have the freedom to do this on Sunday mornings, that we have the privilege to be with God's people, hearing from you through the inspired word of God. We're thankful that we get to learn about the church, the very people that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for, and what they did, and how they responded to the indwelling Holy Spirit. And I pray that we would not just gain more information in our head, but that information would be moved into our hearts for transformation. We want to become more like you. We want to think more like you because of the things that we learned this morning. And we need your help to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. The church has always been a an important part of, of my life, I can remember uh, all the way back to the earliest of days uh, when I first went to church. Uh, my parents would tell me stories of myself, my two older brothers, where we would take marbles uh, at the ages of two and three. We'd set them down at the back pew of the church and we would roll them underneath the pews, race up to the front and grab them and go back and do it again to see uh, who had the fastest marble. Uh, I can remember being in 
uh, elementary school and learning stories from the good old-fashioned flannel graphs. For those who remember what a, a flannel graph is, way before PowerPoint, they had flannel graphs. Uh, I can remember those days. I can remember drinking the watered-down Kool-Aid, uh, eating the goldfish, which is still popular today. Uh, I can remember in junior high and high school going to junior high retreats and going off to, uh, in California, Hume Lake Christian Camps. Uh, I can remember going on missions trips. I can remember in college, going to, to church in college and then uh, off in seminary. I was in the church in seminary. Uh, you could say this, that the church had has had a very important part of my life. In fact, I don't know where I would be without the local church. I can remember sitting in uh, services much like uh, this one, uh, listening to sermons. I've listened to uh, really, really good sermons. I've listened to really, really bad sermons. Uh, I was the kid who would sit there and get bored, and I'd start counting maybe the glass behind me, uh, how many blue ones there are, how many yellow ones there are. Not that any of you have ever done that uh, before or would do that. Uh, I was the one who would sit there, and once there was an illustration about Michael Jordan or about sports, I'd be locked back in to the sermon. Uh, that was my childhood. That, that's what uh, I did. I went to church on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights and back again on Wednesday and any other time that my parents uh, would take me to church. The church has always been an important part of my growth and my life, even through the times when it seemed as though I was learning nothing. It was still an important part of my life. With that being said, I also know this, that the church in America has changed in the last 10, 20, even 30, 40 years. For some of you know, it's even changed even longer than that, who have been older than me. And we know this, that the church is now in what you could say a decline, a moral decline, a spiritual decline. The, the state of the church is not doing good at all. Uh, in fact, uh, even Pastor Shea just sent me uh, an article this week that said this about the pastorate, uh, that since COVID, 50% of pastors had contemplating leaving the ministry because of COVID. Uh, we know this even in, in this area in Seattle, the, the amount of churches who have closed and continue to close uh, year after year and even, even, even month after month, uh, closing their doors because people don't go anymore. The state of the church is, is not doing well. And you have to ask the question, what, what then makes the church an effective church? How do you have an effective church? Whether that's here in Seattle or, or, or in the state or even in America, what, what makes a church an ideal church? But even more than that, not just an ideal church, but what makes a church an effective church? Because we want to be, as a church, an effective church. We want to be a New Testament church. Uh, we want to be a church that has the right priorities. We want to be a church that honors God and, and glorifies God. We, we want to be a church uh, that is effective in our area. What makes an effective church? And does the Bible even speak to what an ideal church is? Well, I believe that, that Acts 2, verses 42 to 47 gives to us what an ideal church should look like. I believe it gives to us what the priorities of the church should be. I believe it gives to us how we can be an effective church right here in our area. This passage is exciting, not just because it's the birth of the church, but because it gives us 
what the early church did and how effective they were. And I could tell you this, the early church was very, very, very effective. And so we're going to see uh, over the next few weeks, the defining marks of an effective church. In fact, there's six defining marks right here in this passage that we're going to look at. It serves as an accountability to one another, to the elders and to the, the leaders here of the church, because we want to be effective and it helps you understand what it takes to be an effective church right here in our area. And I just want to walk through those, uh, these, these marks with us together. Now, to do that, though, we have to set the context because context is king. And to do that, we actually need to go all the way back to verse 1. And we're going to keep going back to Acts chapter 1, verse 1, because it helps us understand the context of what uh, we're about to study. And it says this, go back to Acts 1.1. It says this, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with, here it is, all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now remember, Jesus began some things. What did he do? He came and he saved the world from their sins by dying on the cross. He taught people the way of salvation. And then after dying on the cross and then rising again, remember it was, 50 or 40 days later, he ascended into heaven. 10 days after that was Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit came down and indwelt the believers. And the believers now, moving forward, are all, listen closely, continuing the work that Jesus Christ started. It is a continuation of that work, not the continuation of salvation, but the continuation of evangelizing the world. And we have to remember that. That's important for us to understand because what it does then is it gives the church a mission. It gives the church a purpose. It gives you and I a mission and you and I a purpose. We're continuing the work that Jesus Christ began. And what we see in the book of Acts is the earliest days of that continuation, of that work. And as I said, and we, we studied this, uh, the ascension of Christ in Acts 1, 6, all the way down, uh, even through verse 11. And in that, there's an important verse there, Acts 1, 8. It says, but you will receive power, what? When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you will be my witnesses. In Acts chapter 2, we saw the coming of the Holy Spirit. It came down and it, it dwelt the believers, those first 120 believers. They began speaking in this, this uh, unknown language that, that was unknown to them. And then when the Holy Spirit came upon them, they were able to speak this language. Peter then stands up and he, and he gives explanation to this because everybody's wondering what in the world just happened. Peter stands up, he explains that this is in fulfillment of what, what, what the prophet Joel had even said, or at least a partial fulfillment of that, that on, uh, in those days, uh, uh, I will pour out my spirit. He gives explanation to that. He gives a gospel presentation. He calls people to repentance. You can see that in Acts 2, uh, verse 38. He tells them, you need to repent. You need to be baptized. What? For the forgiveness of sin. That happens, and then in verse 41, it says what? So those who received his word were baptized, and what? And they were added that day, what? About 3,000 souls. Okay, now imagine, you're, you're, you're there. You're in Jerusalem, and you come to know Christ, and you repent of your sins. The question you should be asking yourself is what? What do I do now? <laughs> what now? I, I, I'm a believer. What am I supposed to do? 
Well, the first thing they do is what? It tells us the first thing you do. They all assemble together, and they get together, and they do certain things, and they worship the Lord, and then they disperse and go out, and then it tells us at the end of verse 47 that day by day, more and more were being saved. And this then becomes the model of the believer. They come to know Christ, and they attach themselves to a local assembly. They attach themselves to a church. 3,120 then were mobilized in Jerusalem after hearing the call of repentance by Peter. All of them there to fulfill what is said in Acts 1.8 to be witnesses in Jerusalem and beyond. And Luke, the writer of Acts, gives us then what it is that those early believers did. Assembled together. Listen to this, under no obligation did they assemble together. They wanted to. They desired to be together. They wanted, what do we do now? This was important to them. They understood now they're on mission for Jesus Christ. Their lives have been radically transformed. The question is now, what do we do? So it says, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. A couple things we need to do before we jump into the marks of uh, an effective church. The first thing we need to understand is this, when it comes to the, this assembly, is this. Number one, the church consisted of believers only. The church consisted of believers only. It says, and they devoted themselves. Who are they? They are those who we just talked about in verse 41, the 3,000 souls. The church consisted of believers only. The church did not consist of unbelievers. This was a saved church. This was a redeemed church. It was filled with those who were filled with the Holy Spirit. They came together to to do certain things, to accomplish certain things. It would have been odd for an unbeliever to come to their church service. It would have been awkward because these believers just, just said to their religion, just said to their culture, just said to their society, I reject that and I am going to follow Jesus Christ as the Messiah. The attendance in this meeting would have been, uh, would have been joyful. The, the times of, of, uh, where they came together in these homes would have been exciting. Why? Why would it have been exciting? Why would it have been joyful? Because they were with other people who believed what they believed. They didn't have to go in and saying, huh, I wonder if somebody in this assembly is going to persecute me. I wonder if somebody in this assembly doesn't believe what I believe. And there's great power, and there's great, uh, uh, excuse me, there's great power in this unity. There's great encouragement in the, in the unity that was found amongst believers. Some of these believers are probably ostracized from the community, kicked out of the temple, kicked out of the synagogue. They needed to go where other believers were so that they could be mutually encouraged by them. 
The early church had like-minded community. They had other believers to share life with. They needed fellowship with other believers. They needed to to hear the teaching of God's word. They needed to be in, in communion and have communion with one another. They needed to be in prayer with one another. The church is for believers. You say, but I thought the church is supposed to be for the unbeliever. I thought you should cater your church for the unbeliever. I thought you should be, uh, you know, like seeker sensitive to the unbeliever. It is true that the church should be welcoming. It is true that the church should be warm. It it is true that the, the church should be about outreach. It should be about evangelism. It should be about missions. It should be carrying out the missions. But the church is not about the unbeliever. The church is about the believer. In fact, the very word church, which we'll, we'll find as we keep studying through Acts in the New Testament, the very, the very word church, it, 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 it means this, the called out ones. Those who've been called out to assemble together. Those who are believers who assemble together. Again, it would be quite odd if this church was like, hey, bring in your unbelievers into this fellowship. They'd have been like, why? I need the encouragement of other believers. I need the prayer of the believers for my own soul so that I can go out and reach those unbelievers. You say, Joe, are you saying that there should never be an unbeliever in the church? No, that's, don't, don't mistake me. That's not at all what I'm saying. In fact, I, I know even in our own church, we have unbelievers here come on a weekly basis. But what those unbelievers should recognize is that this place is unique, this place is special, this place when they walk in is filled with believers, and they walk in and they actually feel uncomfortable. And they feel uncomfortable because they recognize, I'm not like what's happening here in this church. I don't actually believe what they believe here in this church. They should feel a sense of, of, of uncomfortable, not because we're not welcoming, not because we're not warm, because they recognize that God is in this place, and they are not in a right standing with God because they do not believe that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior. And so we don't cater our mornings to the unbeliever. That church would look very different. In fact, a church that would cater to the unbeliever would be one who would pull as much of the culture into the church as possible. And that that line would be smeared as much as possible between believer and unbeliever. So that nobody gets offended. That would have been very odd to these early, early, this early church. You say, well, how in the world did they grow? How in the world did, they, did, did, the, did the word get out? The word went out when they broke from their church. And they went out and shared the gospel. And they said, hey, come into my church. I want, I want, I want, I want you to see what I'm about. I want you to see what we do. The early church was filled with believers only. The body of Christ would have struggled if all their gatherings were meant for the unbelievers. The early church would have struggled if they would have catered their 
their meetings for a, a seeker-sensitive, market-driven uh, community. They need to be encouraged and exhorted and purified. They need to be trained. They need to be unified. And when the other unbeliever would walk in, they'd, they'd walk in and say, hey, this place is different. It's not a social club. It doesn't look like Disneyland. It doesn't look like a carnival. It's not dead. It's not boring. It's lifeless. This is where God comes on Sundays, and I want to be a part of that. Secondly is this. Notice this. They devoted themselves to the right things. The church devoted themselves to the right things. Look what it says. And they what? Devoted themselves. They devoted themselves to the right things. You say, what are the right things? Well, the right things are, are there. The teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and of prayers. So you can look down in verse 47. They were praising God, so they were, they were worshipful. And then they added the, uh, to their number day by day. How did they do that? Well, they went out and they, they evangelized. They, they devoted themselves to the right things. They did not devote themselves to, to the culture. They did not devote themselves to entertainment. They did not devote themselves to pragmatism. They did not devote themselves to gimmicks. They did not devote themselves to creativity. They devoted themselves to the right things. They prioritized the right things. That word there, devoted, you could circle it if, if you'd like, that word devoted, it means this, to have a, a steadfast, single-minded fidelity to a certain course of action. They had a devotion to a certain course of action. They had an intense effort. They adhered closely to these things. They were continually devoting themselves. You could say this. Listen closely, church. They were active believers in the church. There was no passive Christian at this point. There was no, hey, I'm just going to go see and check this thing out, and I'm just going to kind of sit back and do nothing. No, they devoted themselves, meaning this, they were all in and they were actively part of the church. They never acted like a consumer. They never walked in and said, hey, what can this church give me? What can this group do for me? They were all in. They were actively all in. They were, they were active in their learning. They were active in their fellowship. Uh, it even, it even describes some of the ways that they were active. They were, they were even radically active in the selling of possessions and belongings. They were, they were active as those who wanted to be a part of something special and wanted to be part of something unique. They were active in the way that they practiced communion. It wasn't just, just something they did because tradition said, let's do it. No, they wanted to know what was so unique and special about the Lord's table where they had a unique participation with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ by, by taking the communion. There was no consumer mentality. They devoted themselves to one another. Because that's all they had. All they had was one another. This was the, the attitude of this early church. Filled with believers. Devoted to the right things. Well, what were they devoted to? Let me give you these marks here. We'll, give, we'll go through two of them this morning. 
these six distinguishing marks of an effective church. The first one is this, is they were a learning church. They were a learning church. Look what it says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You could say it was a teaching church as well. Both would work. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now remember this. Think about the context here. You've got 3,000 brand new believers. There was no Bible outside of the Old Testament. They didn't have First and Second Corinthians. They didn't have the epistles. They didn't have Revelation. They've never heard the word Trinity before, spiritual gifts before. Uh, they, I mean, this was all fresh, and this was all brand new. And imagine this. You've studied the entire Old Testament your entire life, but you had not seen it through the lens of Jesus Christ being the Messiah. I mean, that's like adding high-definition color to your understanding of the Old Testament. That's what happened. I mean, these 3,000 believers, they came to know Christ, and they're like, wait a minute. What was said in Psalm 22 was about that man we just killed? Yes, exactly. Tell me more. What else am I missing? What else have I not learned over these years because I didn't have the Holy Spirit within me? Well, what else have I been missing? Is I, I thought this whole time I was interpreting it right uh, throughout all these years, and, and the, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they're going to the apostles and they're saying, teach me about Jesus. Teach me about the things that he said. Hey, hey, John, hey, Peter, you are in the upper room. What did he say? You were with him in the garden. What did he say? I mean, they're just, just at the feet of the apostles saying, tell us more about who Jesus is. Tell us more about what the Old Testament means. Would you teach us about Jesus? This is, a, this is amazing. Up to this point, think about this. There's no statement of faith. There's no church doctrine they're walking through. There's no traditions or sacred cows they've got to deal with. I mean, the freedom the apostles had to just be like, hey, here's the truth. Here's what it means. What are your questions? I, I, I want to answer them. I mean, they were learning left and right about, about, about what it means to live for Christ. I bet some of them were like, hey, could you just go back? Like, tell me again what you meant by repentance. Can we talk about repentance? Well, what does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah? There were no phrases like, hey, let's talk about counseling in the church. Let's talk about psychology in the church. Let's talk about speaking in tongues in the church. They had that one down, by the way. They just did it. They could give some clear explanation as to what that meant. You say, well, what do they want to learn? They wanted to learn about Jesus. They wanted to know how to follow him. They wanted to know what they were supposed to do. Teach us about the resurrection. I had it all wrong. Teach us about his death. When he said on the cross, I was there, I was there. He said, it is finished. Peter, John, what does that mean? Apostles, what does that mean, it is finished? This man I once rejected, now I love him. Teach us. I want to learn. 
This became the priority of the church where we're learning again and again, teaching again from the Word of God. And as they taught, more and more people would be saved just by simply opening up the Bible and teaching them the Word of God. Because we know this, that it's through the Word of God that people are saved and it's through the Word of God that people are matured. And the church needs to be about teaching the Word of God. It's not about less teaching. It's about as much as Jesus as possible. When you guys come into this church, you should be saying, Pastor, tell me about Jesus. Remind me about Jesus. It was a rough week this week. It was a hard week. I need to be reminded about God and His sovereignty. Don't tell me cute stories. Just tell me about Jesus. That's what I need. Steve Lawson, Pastor Steve Lawson, he said this, talking about Acts 2, he said this, this lengthy quote here. He says, doing God's work God's way requires an unwavering commitment to the primacy of biblical preaching and teaching. The early church experienced spiritual vitality not because of gimmicky techniques, but because it focused on the priority of biblical teaching. The Holy Spirit worked powerfully in the first church by leading the apostles to be prolific in their teaching ministry. Sound doctrine enriched every aspect of the church's life. Everything flowed from the pure fountain of biblical truth. The apostles' ministry of preaching and teaching is mentioned, listen to this, more often than any other activity in which they were engaged. In list of all those verses. So overwhelming is this evidence that it can be argued that Acts is primarily a record of apostolic preaching and teaching. No matter where they were, these apostles were preaching, whether in Solomon's portico and public gatherings before the Sanhedrin or from house to house, they boldly taught in the name of Christ, even in the face of life-threatening dangers, the apostles refused to be silenced, declaring, we cannot stop speaking of what we have seen and heard. When the demands of ministry grew complex, they would not be diverted from their central task of teaching. They said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God. Most notably, when the successful expansion of their ministry was described, it was measured in terms of spreading the word of God. Unmistakably, the apostles' teaching was most important in the early church. Biblical preaching must always occupy the leading place of influence in the life of the church at the core of any healthy congregation is a vibrant exposition of God's word. It was then, and it still is today. May we never think that we can outdo God's word with some gimmicks. May we never think that we can do out God, outdo God's word and the power of God's word by bringing in the culture, by bringing in Santa Claus, by bringing in the Easter bunny, by dressing up in some costume and to think that that's the powerful message of the gospel. May it never be.
And we study book by book in this church, and we, 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 we go slowly as a church here. Because you don't want a pastor to come up here and on his hobby horse just tell you whatever's on his mind and whatever he's thinking and, and whatever, whatever happened in the current events that day and to, to slap on a Bible verse and say, hey, go on your merry way. By preaching expositionally, we allow God to dictate the content and the topic. And we just do what's next. And we don't skim over it. We preach it and we teach it. Even the hard passages and the difficult passages. And we just go verse by verse as best as we can. Not a political speech. Not a devotional. Because we believe as a church that what we need is to hear from God. And how do we hear from God? By opening up His Word and seeing and hearing what it has to say. It's not a conversation. It's teaching. In the book, The Courage to be Protestant by, by David Wells, which um, I, I picked it up just to, just to read a couple comments from it. I ended up reading like four or five chapters of it. Because, and I had it already underlined. And I was just like going back through it because it was so inspiring. And he says this. He says, preaching is not a conversation a chat about some interesting ideas. It is not the moment in which postmoderns hear their own private message in the biblical words, one unique to each one who hears, and then go their own way. No, this is God speaking. He speaks through the stammering lips of the preacher, where that preacher's mind is set on the text of Scripture and his heart is in the presence of God. This kind of preaching that issues a summons which nourishes the soul, which draws the congregation in the very presence of God so that no matter what aspect of his character, his truth, his working in this world is in focus, we leave with awe, gratitude, encouragement, and sometimes a rebuke. We have been in the very presence of God. That is what great preaching always does. This is why Paul said to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4, he said this, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. And then he says this, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears will heap to themselves teachers after their own lusts. What does that mean? It means this, let's hire the person who's going to tell us what we want and let's put him on stage. Because he's going to give us what we want, and he's going to make us feel good, and we're going to have, we have itching ears for entertainment, and we'll just, we'll just keep feeding that guy because he keeps giving us what we want. Teachers after their own lusts. And we need to understand this when it comes to the teaching ministry of the church. It doesn't only come from the pulpit. The desire is that there would be a ripple effect into all aspects of the church so that when you show up to a women's Bible study, you can see them with their Bibles open. When you show up to a men's study, you can see them with their Bibles open. When you go to youth group on Wednesday night, they're going to have their Bibles open. And hopefully that is a ripple effect into the homes, into your home where, where parents have their Bibles open. 
where kids have a Bible in front of them. Why? Because when you open up the Word of God and you read the words of God, you're hearing from your Creator, and it is pointing you back to Scripture. And so is the ministry of the teaching only here in the pulpit? No, it should be everywhere within the church, every aspect of the church. Why? Because we're a learning church. We just want to learn about Jesus. We want to learn the truth. We want to learn how to live our lives. Listen to this pithy short statement by John Stott. He says this, a deaf church is a dead church. A deaf church is a dead church. Stop learning as we stop listening. A listening church is a lively church. And this is what the early church was. They devoted themselves to this. They were all in. They were actively participating in this. Where's the next opportunity to learn? I want to be there. There's something something going to happen this week. I'm there. In fact, it says day by day. I'm there. Why? I want to learn. I just want to learn. I want to learn. I want to learn so I can be effective. I want to learn so I can be able to answer questions. I want to learn for transformation. The early church was a learning church. Secondly, let me just say this and we'll touch on it. We're going to skip the fellowship when we're going to breaking of bread because we're going to do that this morning. I just called it this. They were a communion-taking church. A communion-taking church. We'll talk about fellowship for sure as it, it's woven in and out of this entire section. But it says there to the breaking of bread. To the breaking of bread. What does that mean? Now, now it, it could mean uh, that they had meals in their homes together. In fact, I I believe that is exactly what it means in verse 46, where it says the breaking of bread. But when it comes in a list like this, in a more formal list, uh, it refers to communion or to the Lord's table. One of the two ordinances of the church is baptism and communion. We saw baptism back in verse 38, and here uh, we see communion together, where the church is in the practice of taking communion. It says there, even in verse 42, it says, to, uh, to the breaking of bread. As it says in verse 46, and breaking of bread. So there is a, a direct article there to the bread indicating a specific purpose, which again would, would lend to the translation of this meaning, communion or the Lord's table. Now remember something. This is, I just was sitting at my desk just thinking about this. This is so fascinating. These people have never taken communion before. I mean, these are the first people, these believers, are the first time. Like, we were like, yeah, okay, it's Communion Sunday. We do this once a month. But for them, they're like, Communion, what's that? Wait, Jesus asked you to do something? We're supposed to do it? I'm not doing it yet? Let's do it. What, what are we doing? Yeah, Jesus broke bread. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. What are you talking about? Let's do this. We need to do it. We need to have communion. This would have been an incredible moment for them, and even, not even just a teaching opportunity for that. The first time these believers, the church, ever took communion together as a body of Christ. It would have been so fascinating. I wish I was there to see it. They would have gone back to, to that day and to that, that night, and they would, have, they would have said the very words that Jesus said. Because remember, 1 Corinthians isn't written yet. Where we go to, to Paul and we say, hey, here's what Paul said. 
right? It's helpful to us. They would have gone back to the words of Jesus, what Jesus said. And in Luke, in Luke 22, he said these various things. This is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup after and he had eaten. He said, this is the cup that is poured out for you. It is the new covenant of my blood. And they, they devoted themselves to this new covenant, this new way of reminding themselves of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Have you ever asked yourself the question, church, why in the world do we take communion? Why do we do this? Why is this important? Some of you would say, it's just tradition. This is just what we do. It's tradition in the Baptist church, the Protestant church, the Catholic church. It's just tradition. I want to tell you, it is so much more than that. In fact, we don't do it because it's tradition. We do it because God calls us to do it. And Christ has asked us to do it. And, and the reason why we take communion, we, we find the reason why in, in a verse in 1 Corinthians 10, 26, this is what it says. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not, listen to this, a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? That, that word for participation there, it, it's the Greek word for koinonia, which is the word for fellowship. Participation, it's the word for communion. It's, it's where we get the word communion and why we take communion. Which means this, this verse is saying that when we take of the Lord's table, we, we have, listen, an intimate fellowship, a communion with Jesus Christ, a communion with his death, a communion with his resurrection, a communion with his body in a spiritual way that you cannot get from the preaching of God's word, that you cannot get from praying with God. There is something unique that happens spiritually when the body of Christ takes communion together. It's mysterious. A mystic union for sure. But something unique happens here. Donald Whitney says this, participation in the Lord's Supper allows us an experience with Christ that cannot be enjoyed in any other manner, neither prayer nor preaching of God's word, public or private worship, nor any other means of encounter with the Lord can bring us into the presence of Jesus Christ in exactly the same way. God has given to his children several means of communion with his son, but one is unique to the Lord's Supper. Further, this communion is, is spiritual. That is, it does not occur merely by eating the bread and drinking of the cup, but by faith. And even though the bread and the cup do not contain the physical body and blood of Jesus, nor are they changed into them, they really do minister Christ to those who believe. Man, doesn't that just raise and elevate the importance of communion? A spiritual fellowship, a spiritual encounter, a spiritual communion with Jesus Christ as we remember his death on the cross, as we, as we take the bread, as we take the cup, and as we do this together as the family of God, 
We don't just do it just to do it. We don't just do it because it's tradition. We really believe that in taking this, that we get to encounter Christ and be in fellowship with Christ in a way that we can't get through the preaching, through prayer times, through fellowship with believers. The Apostle Paul would continually teach this to the church. So he'd write these letters, and in 1 Corinthians, he he reminds us that when we take communion, it's also a time of, of proclaiming Christ's death to the world. I always say this, for an unbeliever to walk in here and go, what are you guys doing with that bread and that juice? Like, what? Why? 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 What are you dunking people in water for in baptism? Like, what? It, right? Those are the things they should be asking those questions of what? Why? What are we doing? We're proclaiming the death of Jesus Christ. Paul would also tell us that not only is there participation, there's proclamation, but there's also anticipation. We do this until the Lord comes. Until he comes. And what a joy and privilege it is for us. Here we are, thousands of years later, to participate in the same thing the early church did. The Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. We get to take communion. This morning we're going to do that. When we have the, the guys come up and lead us in worship and I know deacons, you guys are prepared to, to pass out. Why don't you guys go ahead even now and we'll start passing out, out the elements this morning. With renewed minds this morning, even as the elements are being passed out, let me just remind you, church, that the, the elements are for believers. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, we ask that you just allow this to pass from you and allow the believers to partake in this. We also ask, even as for the believers, that, that you would even make things right and reconcile things with the Lord. That this would be a moment for you to, to think back on your own salvation as you hold the bread, as you hold the cup, and as you think about His death. He paid it all for you that you would confess sin, that you would cast your cares on him. Just take time to do that, just in the quietness of the morning. Our Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to to take together with the family of God the bread and the cup, to have a sweet, communion, even just to hold in our hands the visible, tangible reminder of what you've done for us. We need reminders in our lives. We set reminders every single day, and you set reminders for the church to think back about what the Messiah did on the cross for us through the bread and through the cup. We can think about that. We can meditate on that we're reminded of the grace that you've given to us. Lord, again, we're thankful for the church. Thank you for instituting it. Thank you for the blueprints that you've given to us, the playbook for us to run. Lord, our desire at Redemption Hill Bible Church is to be as effective as possible and to be a church that honors you. 
lifts high your, your son, Jesus Christ, each and every week. In his name we pray. Amen.